Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I am graduate assistant Jacob Michael, and here with me are hosts as usual, Dr. Levi Russell and Dr. Russ McCullough. Okay, so today we are going to be discussing the concept of limbic capitalism, which um, Jacob wrote a nice little blog post uh, on our blog, blog.gortneyinstitute.org, and he kind of did an article review of, I think it was an economist's uh, article on the concept of limbic capitalism. So, so addictions play into this. Yeah, We're going to yeah. get into drugs. It's about, it's about uh, uh, addiction. Sex and rock yeah. and roll or something. Yeah, trying to explain like the The article that Jacob is reviewing is entitled How Limbic Capitalism Preys on Our Addicted Brains. And it's by a guy named David Courtright. So Jacob, how would you introduce us to this concept of limbic capitalism? So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty nuanced idea about um, how the things that we interact with or the the goods that we're offered kind of prey on our limbic system, which helps us to like create cravings or to discover motivations. So it's kind of this idea that we're presented with things that make us addictive and kind of hurt us in our social aspects of our lives. Okay. So you're, and is that a bad thing or a good thing? I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely so is it, is it, is it arguing that capitalism leads to bad outcomes like there's a better alternative or is it just hmm. a matter of fact that this is something so it sounds kind of behavioral so it's, it's, it's more yeah there's definitely a lot of behavioral econ but he talks about how um the technology has become so it can only exist in very advanced uh, societies because the technology has to be advanced enough to be able to you know kind of exploit these human flaws and so I, he doesn't really offer a better alternative and so i don't really know really how, how you would get away from that at this point, but it's more, but this gets to more to the, a physical thing, right? There's some chemistry in our bodies yeah, that yeah. are going on as opposed to behavioral. That'll be more thought oriented that we mm -hmm. have these biases. Although I can see the two playing together. You have a bias because you're, you've got this physical little chemical reaction going mm -hmm. in saying, I want it, I want it, I want it. And it screws up your rate of time preference such that you're, willing to do a what seemingly irrational trade of interest rates, for instance. For, well, and so you know, he having he, consumption now. He, he um, calls it pathological learning is what the neurosciences, neuroscientists have called it because they found like the pathways that interact when you make decisions or a lot of it with the, the things that kind of prey on our minds is you get that instant gratification or that dopamine rush. And so subconsciously, like, you, it's just um, always about wanting more of it, I guess, because he talks about how he was teaching a class in Stockholm, and uh, this kid came up to him at the end of the class and said that he was the only male graduate student in the economic history department now, because every other one had dropped out to, like, play World of Warcraft, and that's all they were doing, he was saying. Yeah, and so he's asking, like, you know, how do they feel about that, and they all feel angsty and upset, but... You know, it's hard for them to get away oh. from that, and they've pretty much ruined their lives over that. And he talks about this kid in China that literally cut his hand off to try to limit his use of the internet, and then wow. China did a study, That's and they found like fourteen. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they found like fourteen percent of their population has like the, an internet addiction. They so they started setting up camps in 
China. Or, <laughs> Sounds yeah, like China. Camp, camps might not be yeah, yeah, probably <laughs> set up a camp. Rehabilitation yeah. centers. <laughs> That's their go-to. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have modus operandi. Hey, let's, uh, let's set up a camp. Yeah. We need a camp for that. But some days, those places have recognized that it's a pretty significant problem of, you know... Preferably a camp that work is associated with, so we got to... <laughs> oh, my We God. value work, just like... Uh... Oh, my <laughs> We're going to get letters for this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so, so part of the problem, too, is the, the business models that arise because of that are... They try to promote even more and more consumption to make it even worse. I'm, I make the point in the blog that I can't think of a video game that you only play for 10 or 15 minutes and put it down. <laughs> because it, you just need to put more time into reap, I guess, the rewards of the the game. But I think it kind of messes up our cost benefit analysis because it's not really you're you're feeling something from it, but it's not really impacting your actual social life. And so yeah, but I mean, from a business standpoint, to, you you I'm not a gamer, so I got two of them in front of me here. But they want you to play the game longer. Aren't you exposed to more advertising that they ultimately get paid for on the back end? So from a business model perspective, keeping you on that game longer makes them more money. I don't know many games I see ads in, but definitely games with, you know, you, you can buy extra stuff in the game. And, and yeah, I guess the more you like it, the more you're into it, the more you'll tell your friends about the game and they'll go and buy it. Too. But I think, sure. you know, a lot of it too is, trying to, you know, gain the experience or whatever, have the best equipment or something. You have to put hours and hours and hours in for... I guess my point is more of it's it's not a diabolical plan on the gaming industry's part, but rather an unintended consequence of them pursuing profit, right? Yeah, uh, well, I think they make the games to a be that way. Consequence of... So I think that is intentional, though. I think they've developed the games in a way to target that. But, but I think I think the point is that it's it, it's an unintended consequence of the way the incentives are set up. So it's like that's that's the way people's brains work, and so the only way to make a successful game in the, the, the system that we have now is to do that. But I, I think, to me... It, I, I think there's something, it plays into some stuff that we've been talking about a lot lately, which is kind of this idea of technology. And, you know, we had talked about potentially showing that movie on campus about uh, how you know, people are being watched by, you know, yeah. the government. Also, you know, it's like, and so if you look at, you know, all of human history and the last hundred years are just completely different in so many ways. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you're you can be so much more easily monitored. And even the last um, twenty years. Yeah, right. Yeah, and especially we're the most like yeah, this we're generation talking about the is the most yeah. going to be the most watched. Yeah, uh, yeah. Observed generation with the games <laughs> they play, the stuff they watch. The I mean, everything right. flowing Recording through the everything on their phone. So, a little bit on them. Too. And so yeah. I don't I don't yeah. see it as a you know we're we're saying bad things about the concept of businesses or free enterprise or anything like that. We're just saying that. Sometimes, in some cases, there are these really strange events in human history that just that don't even make sense with mm. the rest of our experience. I mean, we've only been reading books for 500 years. That, that the way people interact with their environment changes, and when some of these changes take place, they're so fast that our brains just are not wired to deal with it. I mean, I know there was this old uh, weightlifting coach guy who was really famous for the books that he wrote about, you know, lifting weights and stuff like that. And he's like, the human body did not evolve to sit down and watch Oprah all day. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we, we, our, our systems are, are geared towards like constantly trying to find food and expending energy. And so now it's like we've, we have exercises, you know, so is it, I don't know about constantly, but well, sure. But you know, <clears throat> not, not constantly, but a lot more than, you know, sitting thing, at a right? desk. Right. Right. right, right. Yeah. No, I get you. So it, it's, it's, just, it's just one of those things where the complex the, the, enough, 
mentally and physically that we need a combination of all that. Sure. A well-rounded life, so to speak. Right. And so if desk jobs had phased in over the period of a thousand years, you know, our bodies could maybe have adapted to the better or, you know, same with the games, right? If these video games had, had come in over a thousand years, maybe we would been able to adapt to them, but because it's 20 or like, yeah. you know, a couple of decades, right? Then all of a sudden it's like, boom, you know, and our brains just can't maybe handle that so well because our brains are wired for a different type of activity. So is the, is the author there trying to say, or offering some sort of policy prescription or is this one of those things where if we're just aware of it, we'll adapt to it and maybe moderate ourselves. Like, you know, we drink alcohol in moderation or everything in moderation. Like here, here's some science that shows Mm -hmm. you could be, or might be addicted. And then you're, you might be playing world of Warcraft 24 seven and that's not a great life to lead. So be aware of that. And I think it was definitely more of a kind of a call to attention because he, he describes how it's so dangerous because it like particularly affects those who are most susceptible to some of these behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't really give, you know, a specific solution or alternative, but it's more of something that, you know, I hadn't really considered in that context. And like, he, he gives the example with alcohol that like 80% of alcohol is drunk by like 20% of people. And he, gave, is that right? Yeah. 80, 20 rule. 80, yeah. 20 rule on alcohol. Right. Wow, yeah. I shit. never thought of it on alcohol yeah. before. Right. Yeah. So it talks about, yeah, potentially true. I, mean, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, so yeah, he makes the point that like the people that are most susceptible to like the even just the brain chemistry of being addicted to the rush of, rush of do- the dopamine or the instant yeah. gratification yeah. that you know these products give them that they're going to be the ones that are really wrecking their lives. Or, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, anything that brings more transparency to things to to reality allows us to make better decisions and and be more cautious. I, I think we've drugs are bad and now we're legalizing drugs. Right. And so we're having an awareness of what those things can do. And it doesn't always lead to, there's people on both sides of the fence of this fact are we have our little drug debate coming up here between Dr. Clark and Dr. Russell on, on the, the legalization of drugs. But do people who are aware of those negative circumstances necessarily fall prey to being an addict? And the answer is, think is pretty clearly no. I mean, I think pornography is a another huge one here lately. I mean, kids that are 10 years old, you know, and you think that would be the most awful thing with the things that they can see on the, on the internet that might drive them to be some crazy sex addict or something. But I think what we see is that humans have the ability to moderate and impose self-controls that we sometimes don't think they can. Like we're all going to fall down the slippery slope. Like, oh, you get exposed to drugs, you get exposed to porn, you get exposed to video mm. games, and we all slide slowly into this awfulness. See, um, yeah. And I don't mm. think that's the case. We always have these fringe cases, the 20% that fall down that mm. slope. And then the question is, what's the right path to go? Do we ban it? I think, I think, I think the problem regulations, there is... Or do we, I think just have transparency. So I think the problem there is, is, is in a lot of cases you, you get to tipping points and stuff like that. So it's like, yeah, okay. So you, you, this new technology comes out or whatever, and, and it changes people for a, a period of time. And then all of a sudden people get tired of it and they don't get tired of it and just moderate. They shift, you know, excessively. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then it just causes more, variance in people's lives, right? It, uh, there's a book uh, that I just picked up. Um, it's called the, Com- the Collapse of Complex Societies. 
And so it shows that like as societies get more and more complicated, whether institutionally or technologically or whatever, the more a single event can bring the whole thing crashing down. Right. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, we'll have to talk about that in a future episode. I was going to say, you'll have to read on that because I certainly have my thoughts are like that can't be true. So I'd love to hear what those are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once I get through the book, I'll, we'll have to do an episode on it, but but I, Jacob, I think you were going to say something, and maybe we'll yeah. switch and, and uh, go to our break. Well, I was going to say on what Russ was saying. I think part of the problem, too, especially with the video game example that Courtright even discusses a little bit, is that a lot of it targets very young kids, and people don't see it as problematic because it's kids playing a game, you know? Yeah. And that's why the, it's such a problem when it's older is because they've been exposed to it for such a prolonged time. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's a lot of research he talks about and goes into that says, like, you know, you, you've heard of like once you start smoking when you're younger, you're yeah. at a higher risk. It's kind of it's the exact same thing. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And on the, on that, since we're back to the drug thing, the brain, I think some of this neurological <clears throat> research that the young brain can be so much more um, held back from marijuana use before age 25. Mm. After age 25? No, yeah. like developmentally? Yeah, developmentally, oh, okay. like you're beyond that. I heard 25 was the one that sticks out in my mind. So the main thing is, yeah, if, if there's an issue of it's hard to keep marijuana out of young people's hands, um, they're still, you know, when they're 11, 12, 13, let's assume that they can't be perfectly rational agents that we expect them to be in adulthood mm-hmm. or, right. or what we cherish in the United States that, you can make your own choices, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's where all the tension lies. So, yeah, after a break here, we'll come back and continue on. The Gortney Institute's vision. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Okay, so just continuing our discussion on this uh, Limbic Capitalism article uh, that Jacob summarized for us on the blog, and again, that's blog.gortneyinstitute.org. 
what I wanted to bring up on this is I think that there's some interesting economic components to this and, and we'll talk about payoffs and stuff like that. Before the break, you know, Russ was talking about the idea that we have this transparency, we become aware of these sorts of things and we can sort of our, our we can attenuate our, our individual behavior based on that information. And so that's good. Um, and I think that the problem with these types of games, I think is that they are social in a way that is completely different than playing checkers with your friend or playing backyard football is that there are just, there's millions of people playing these video games all over the planet. And so like the game is always available and there's such a social component to it. And it reminds me of, um, and I think we may have talked about this where Tucker Carlson was talking about kids and cell phones and how, you know, to an extent, potentially there's some evidence that, you know, it's, it's harming these kids uh, psychologically um, to just always be connected to their friend groups and never being able to get away. And the harassment. Right. And the harassment and all that stuff. Right. And so, because it's not just an individual decision. You know, one of the, one of the criticisms was like, Oh, well, if you can't handle your own kids, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, okay. I can tell my kids that you can't have a cell phone until you're 16 or whatever. But if every other kid at school has them when they're 12, then my kid's going to be miserable at school the whole time. And so it's very much, you know, like it is an individual decision, but there's so much in the cost structure, the, the payoffs that make it so difficult for one individual person to get this information and then act on it. And I think there's some similarities in especially these electronic type games. Yeah, some social costs that they might be incurring. However, I hate to put too much weight in one single device, although granted this one single device is multiple devices yeah, yeah. wrapped up in it's, one. Yeah. You, got, you got a flashlight, you got the camera, you're a video it's, it's a handheld it's computer. A, yeah. it's a, so when I say one device it, and, and something that's so ubiquitous, if I can use that big word, in the United States everywhere. right now, yeah, I mean, it is, it is everywhere, then, then you do face potential isolation or mm-hmm. lack of, especially as a young person in junior high or something in those formative yeah. years. When, that, when those things are very, very difficult to deal with. Yeah. And I think <laughs> yeah, the, right. the pushback then would be, yeah, but they're formative years, but we don't want them forming with the crap that's on that phone, you know, or that type of thing <laughs> yeah. would be the that's exactly you what know, rightful saying. pushback. So again, I think that that whole parenting aspect comes in on having some values and morals and trust that here's the phone, here's the dangers here's how your life could end up, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, I don't, it's, it, brain, and, but it's that's dependent upon your kid too, right? So like my son Carter has always been a pretty rational, rational, reasonable thinker on those things. And I had the luxury of being able to explain, you know, a little cost benefit analysis and, and that it worked. But for other parents, I don't think that's true. <laughs> And, and it's not because of the parenting, it's because of the receiver. So there's both sides of that exchange that are important to observe. So I, I wonder what Court Ride would think about with the rise of esports. And, you know, here at Ottawa, you can get a scholarship to play now, how that changes the payoffs of spending, you know, large amounts of time playing a video game. So yeah. it's not just that there's like a social downside to not participating. Now there's an explicit financial and you know and there is a social uh, education well sure sure i'm just saying it's not just that there's a downside if you don't use it now there's an explicit upside if you do so it's it really i think especially in behavioral economics right how we treat losses differently from gains and yeah um, you know there's the fame aspect to it and all that sort of thing so it really does affect well and if if OU would have listened to a little consulting from dr mccullough uh, we would have had this esports thing four years ago and been a leader on it because I was sold on it being a real thing when I saw my son as a 
freshman, sophomore, whatever, playing these games. He was playing Dota, which had at that time, even four years, four or five years ago, a $10 million uh, winnings, and they were packing stadiums in Seattle. I'm like, and then I'd watch him play and the strategy and the communication, acting as a team. I mean, there, there was a, I mean, like, this is no different than playing a sport other than the physical aspect. So, and we have lots of other yep. scholarship activities that aren't, you know, traditional, super, super yeah. physical. Right. So yeah. I, I was like, well, that's no brainer. Let's bring on esports. <laughs> and then everybody's like, what? We can't pay kids to, you know, play video games and, you know, the normal reaction. <laughs> Grandpa and, voice. A little, a little bit of schadenfreude for all of the listeners here at the university who are now uh, listening to our thing and mad at Russ. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So how do you think the esports plays into that? Does that make it more valuable or less? I mean, I, I think relative that, to this addiction stuff. I think it's still probably not the best thing to maybe incentivize it. I mean, I think there's value in it, but I think it changes how you even maybe evaluate social relationships because if you go online to socialize, that's a lot different than going and talking to someone that, you, you know, someone that you're close with. You, you sound so old school right now. Because, <laughs> I love it. You know, like this is online. This just reminds me of discussions on online dating, you know, 20 years ago that I had with, as that evolved, like huh. what you met somebody online and how can you, trust them or how can you have a you know whatever uh, relationship that way and so and, and granted uh, of course I don't want everybody to have completely digital relationships but as an introduction mechanism yeah. and matchmaking uh, but see that's the thing though man it's just like it's just one more step you know and then the next step <laughs> one more step seem... to global domination well it's like one, one more step you know so like you you look back and you're like, well, how did I, how did I just make a hundred steps? And it's like, well, you did it one step at a time. Yeah. And yeah. like, I was like, why don't I have any friends but, around okay, me? Let, let, friends let's clarify that. So are sure. we talking steps towards big brother watching this and potentially being in a, let's say a step closer to communist China where there's social credits and monitoring I mean, by some central planner that tells you what's good and what's bad. I think there's plenty of discussion right now about the, similarities between how social media organizations and these gaming companies too are treating people in in a similar way to the way the social credit system works in China. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you can say that, okay, well, yeah, it's just games. Well, for now, but you know, Amazon web services provides, you know, database space for a lot of the federal government. And so it's like, okay, well, we're starting to blur lines here, you know, mm -hmm. between Jeff Bezos and the president, like yeah. big, I'm not, I'm not, big business playing kiss. Yeah, face I, well, with right. us. I'm, I'm not saying not I'm, not, capitalism. I'm not saying it's 1984, 15 minutes, but it's like <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you take a step and it's, and it yeah. doesn't always seem like a good thing. Well, so I get the two, I have two things. The first one being, you know, I saw a lot of parallels actually between kind of brave new world when I was reading this, because he talks about how all these things are trying to promote our consumption and in brave new world. They, they get rid of all sports that don't promote consumption. They have to buy things to play the sport. So I, I kind of thought that that's interesting how it's just trying to get us to maybe consume and consume even more. You know, I'm blanking on the second thing now. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll throw in while you think of your second thing that my answer to that, I sat in on a conference that talked about, you know, all the evolution of robot learning and machine doing and computers can do everything um, type of thing that in order to avoid that, big government running my life for having control like we see in communist China is we have to have these principles 
that competition needs to be maintained. We, and part of that ties in a little bit to what we've seen with Facebook and, and other things. But I, I think mm-hmm. as new technologies evolve, as long as we have these principles of free entry and exit and competition and fighting that alliance that inevitably starts to form between big business and big government, if we have a good rule of law that, that keeps that in check, then we'll have two digital alternatives to turn over our whole psyche to, or multiple digital alternatives, if you follow what I mean, or multiple that we could do. Like you talked about this new world thing, what, what the heck was it called that you and uh, Justin are, are a new operating oh, system, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, whatever um, that was called. Yeah, Urbit. Urbit, yeah. So, you know, different things are going to evolve that challenge that, provided we have a government system that falls on a rule of law that supports competition and doesn't try to say, oh, for the public benefit, it would be best if the government had one digital system that allowed you all of these wonderful options, and that'll be for the good of society because it would be bad or inefficient if we had multiple people doing the same thing, we'd have replication. No, we wouldn't. We'd have a lack of innovation, a lack of change, so, and more government control. Just, just to ask you, because I mean, I, I'm with you on the competition thing, but what if everyone's competing to make the most addictive thing? I, because I, that, that's part of the problem is, you know, the, the, the business model that exists because of this technology is everyone's going to promote consumption. So the next person is more competitive. I, I is think I'd fall back more. that on your 80-20 thing is, is what I'd observe. I'd never heard it in the 80-20, but you're going to get 20% of the people that are really addicted and that's the state of nature that we wouldn't want to be. But as long as there's an 80% that can self-discipline, keep themselves in check, moderate, blah, blah, blah that it's not this all-in-all all way that we're mind control, so to speak, that sends us down that slippery slope. I think we're okay with 80% of the population. We should be able to maintain checks and balances. I think, I think that kind of depends because I think it, it goes back to what you were saying about you know, maintaining these principles. And what I kept thinking was politics is downstream from culture. And so it's like if – and we've talked about this with Facebook. It's like, yeah, okay, they might be prop, – or, or YouTube, right? They might be profit maximizers – Sort of, you know, like they, they might be, they might be one degree away from actual profit maximization and because they make all their money on non-political stuff, they can just ban whoever they want on the political side and they can completely change the conversation. I mean, there was a guy who testified before Congress, uh, the Senate, I think, and he said that, that Facebook could easily swing an election. Like he, they, they could, they could swing the vote 5% based on who, cause they know everything about the people they're mm-hmm. advertising to, you know, they can, they can put you know, certain ads in front of certain people at certain times, incentivize them to vote and boom, the election has completely switched. But, so it, but to me, we, so, those principles can, I, I think that there's such, there's so much power over no, the political sphere that think, it, feels, think, it feels a little different. And I think where I was coming from was that when, when we see that happening, like we saw to some degree in this last election cycle, and we'll probably see again, if the majority sees that, and has principles in their gut that say that's not right, and there's ability for other people to enter and create competition through urban or new things that we can't even think of at this point, as long as those principles are held tightly and 80% of the population hasn't slipped into this addictive obey the government mindset or whatever, then I think we're going to be okay. Yeah. So, and to me, the question is just, you know, if you have 
one generation, that's fine. But then if, if the next generation is influenced differently from those other entities, then, yeah. you know, they, they may lose those principles, right? They're on the long game as yeah. some of these sure. countries have, they have a hundred year plan yep. like so, in China. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I wanted to ask you guys from a faith perspective, you know, in the, in the parable of the talents at the very end, you know, the person who didn't go out and use it, you know, wasn't fruitful with what he was yeah. given. He takes it and gives it to one with 10. <laughs> Are we kind of playing into that? Are we not being fruitful if we just sit around and play into this addictive behavior, behavior though? Well, I think what that gets to is it gets to the difference between, I mean, how we as economists, you know, you and I, Russ, how, how we should treat our profession in terms of its ability to give us information. That we have to be careful, I think, and this is something I've been thinking about for years, the last two or three years, is that I think oftentimes if we, if we just go down this road of really thinking just about the economics, you know, just the costs and benefits, the payoffs and stuff, which I don't think yeah. economics is, but okay. I always have <laughs> well, to poke that in, but yes. I mean, cost and benefits are general. No, right? I, I mean, it's not no, just it's financial. definitely one but, major area. But, it's, but we have to be cognizant of the framework we're using to define what those costs and benefits are. So there has to be a moral framework that sits above the economic analysis. And so I think that commits us to saying things like what you're saying, Jacob, with the talents thing is that, okay, sometimes there have to be exceptions because things are just different. They're just novel. Whereas I think in economics, right, we kind of want to treat, we kind of want to break all activities down into these sort of analytical groups, but maybe there's a case to be made for saying video games are just different from playing checkers. I I think I pretty much agree with what you said, except that I, I view the morality part as in intertwined intimately with the economic analysis part. And I think that's the way Adam Smith saw it, too, that um, you can't detach those two things. You're either lacking in one and have more of the other or, you know, more of one and lacking the other or as you try to do. But they're really tightly woven together in a complex way. And uh, we need both. I think we need both. Okay, well, I think we've uh, once again solved most of the world's questions here in this uh, 30 Minutes podcast. And I appreciate you all listening to the uh, Gortney Institute's production here today. And uh, please, uh, if you like what you heard, uh, subscribe to us on your local podcast app. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.